Well, we're going to be looking at John chapter 11 this morning. We'll be reading verses 17 through 44. That will come up on your screen, but we'll be taking them by sections as we go throughout the course of the sermon. Uh, but if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to it. will be in John chapter 11. We've been studying Mark's gospel on Sunday mornings at Grace. And uh, last Sunday, we looked at Mark chapter 3, and we saw that there were all kinds of people that were around Jesus, that were listening to his teaching, or at least they were hearing what he was saying. But we saw that there were a number of people who weren't actually listening to what he was saying. The, the crowd had gone to him, we saw last week in Mark chapter 3, with real needs. Many were sick, many were oppressed by demonic forces, and they knew that Jesus was doing that kind of healing ministry. And so they went out to him looking to see what he could do for them. They had real needs. And, and Jesus healed many. But not all listened to what he was saying. They didn't listen to his teaching. They were failing to make a connection between what he was doing and what he was saying. They weren't seeing that the miracles, the things that he was doing, were actually meant to reinforce everything that he was saying. The miracles, the healings, weren't meant to be an end in themselves. They were meant to point to something greater that Jesus would ultimately accomplish. Well, that same dynamic is happening in our text that we're going to be looking at this morning. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he raised a man from the dead. And, and people saw it. They, they marveled at it. Many believed, but not all. And so the question then becomes, even though they saw what Jesus did, were they listening to what he had said? And that's really the thing we need to wrestle with this morning. We need to realize it is so important that we listen to what Jesus is saying. That we see and understand that the raising of Lazarus that we're going to read about here in a minute, that that ultimately points us toward the greater hope that is found in the one who did the raising, that is found in the one who himself is risen, Jesus Christ, who said that he is the resurrection and the life. That's where our hope in all things is ultimately found. There are many right now who find themselves feeling a need for hope. All of us have been touched in some way by the COVID pandemic, whether it be physically, we ourselves are sick or we know people who have died, um, emotionally, uh, economically, relationally, uh, in all these different ways. We have experienced a season or are experiencing a season of desolation. But some have entered into this COVID pandemic and really see it as just so much more salt into wounds that have already run deep. We all suffer in various ways. We all experience now to a degree, and at various times in our lives, seasons of desolation. Where will we find hope? Well, the Christian teaching is that hope for this season of desolation and any season of desolation is found in the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. His own resurrection, which we celebrate today, every Sunday, but especially today, and his promise to give resurrection and eternal life to all who believe in him. This is the hope that Christianity offers in our time, in this time of desolation or any time of desolation. So we're going to take a look at the text and we're going to work our way through the text by looking at the main characters in the text. Martha, 
Mary, Jesus, and Lazarus. And these will be our four points for this morning. From Martha, we are reminded that our doubts are best brought to Jesus. From Mary, we're reminded that our grief, from her grief, we're reminded that our deepest pain is best brought to Jesus. In Jesus' tears, we get a window into the very heart of God. And then in Lazarus' life, we get a picture, a little glimpse of what happens whenever anyone responds to the call of Christ. So Martha's doubt, Mary's grief, Jesus' tears, and Lazarus' life. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for this account. We're thankful that it was recorded for us so that we could even now, down to this very day, be reminded of things that are eternally true. We ask that you would seal these truths to our hearts by the power of your Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, Martha's doubt. And before we read verses 17 through 27, let me just set the scene a little bit for us. If you were to go back and read uh, from 11, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1, you would see that Lazarus and Mary and Martha are all friends of Jesus. And Lazarus has fallen ill. He's sick. Jesus is about four days away from Bethany, from where you know, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are. So Mary and Martha send messengers to Jesus to say, hey, listen, Jesus, Lazarus, your friend, he's sick. Now, why would they do that? They did that because they knew what everyone else knew. Jesus heals people who are sick. And so, of course, it just seems logical that, that Jesus would want to come back and, and heal Lazarus. His friend is sick. Mary and Martha, you know, they're of course he's going to want to come back and heal Lazarus. But Jesus says, "Mm, we're going to wait. We're going to wait. He ends up waiting actually until after Lazarus has died, and then he begins the four-day journey back to Bethany. So that's, that's where we are when we get to verse 17. So let's read it. We're going to read verses 17 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. All right, let's stop there. A couple observations. First of all, Martha had strong faith. She had strong faith. Look back again at verse 22. In verse 22, she said, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That's strong faith that's evidence there. Verse 27, same thing. 
Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She believed that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who had been prophesied from the Old Testament. But even people with strong faith doubt. Martha experienced doubt. And we see it here in the text. In verse 21, look again at it. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now that could be an affirmation of faith or it could be a little bit of a rebuke. You know, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But then especially when you get down to verse 39, which we'll read in a minute. Let me just read it for you right now. In verse 39, Jesus says, take away the stone from the tomb. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. So whatever Martha meant when she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world, that didn't include raising Lazarus from the dead because she was ready to say, we can't roll that stone back. So faith, yes, strong faith. Doubt, yes. But she went out to him. Like Martha, we must take our doubts to Jesus. We are all to various degrees like Martha, every one of us. Some have great and strong faith. Some feel like, some of you feel like your faith is weak and you just feel like you're hanging on by a thread. Some, are not, some of you are not Christian at all. You're, I'm so thankful you're watching, but you would say, I don't believe this at all. I have doubts. Everyone experiences doubt. The question is, what do we do with that doubt? And Martha models for it, for us, taking our doubt to Jesus. There's actually an interchange that takes place between Martha and Jesus in this text that is really helpful for addressing one of the doubts that some of you may have when it comes to Christianity. Uh, You know, the, the doubt, a common one, is, you know, what if Christianity is all made up? Right? You know, what if the disciples just said the tomb was empty? It really wasn't. They just made that up. What if, what if Christianity grew because everyone wanted to believe that it would be true? Everyone wanted to believe that Jesus was really God. Every, everyone wanted to believe that, that he would die and then he would rise. And so the disciples, you know, lie was an easy sell. What if Christianity is just all made up? Well, there's actually an, the interchange that I want to read for us between Martha and Jesus helps us understand uh, how that's not the case at all. So let's look back again at the text. Verse 23, Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection and on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. All right, so what's happening there? Martha had an expectation of what the resurrection would be. In fact, many Jews, not all, but many Jews believed, and Martha believed, that there would be a resurrection of all people at the last day. And Jesus is saying to her, listen, I'm God. So there, there's, the, the response is even you know, more mind-blowing than the question that she raises. She says, of course I know that 
that there's going to be a general resurrection at the last day. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, which is a way of saying, I am God. Not just because, you know, he's saying, I do the kinds of things that God does. The I am statements that you see throughout the Gospels are his way of telling people who are able to hear it, I am the I am from the Old Testament. I am God in the flesh. And then, of course, after Jesus' resurrection, uh, Jesus' resurrection, the disciples will claim that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that the tomb is in fact empty. Now, you need to be reminded of a couple of things. First of all, the truth of Christianity totally depends on the reality of the resurrection. If Jesus Christ is not risen, if the, if the resurrection of Jesus never happened, then Christianity is a waste of time. But if Jesus Christ is risen, if the resurrection really happened, that changes everything. Now you really have to take profoundly seriously what the Bible says about God, about you, about me, about the world, about eternity. So that, that's, the resurrection is central, and the central claim that was being proclaimed to the Jews, mainly, initially, after Christ's resurrection, was that he is risen. And so the question we have to ask is, Okay, since there were thousands of people who almost immediately believed that Christ was risen, who were all Jews, how did they come to believe that to be true? Were they primed because of their understanding of God to believe that that would be true? Was it what they were wanting to hear? And the answer is not at all. Not at all. So again, Martha said, I believe that there will be a resurrection at the last day. That's what most Jews believe. But the disciples were going to be teaching, actually, Jesus rose from the dead, one person in the middle of history. Not something that any Jew would have been expecting. Not something they would have been primed to believe. And then there's the fact that, that, the, that Jesus himself said, and the disciples would say, Jesus is actually God in the flesh. He is man. Yahweh, God, became man, and then he experienced God's curse by going to the cross and dying, and every single Jew would have picked up stones at that point to throw at the person who was saying that, because that was blasphemy. And then when you read the accounts of the resurrection that we have in the Gospels, you realize not even the disciples were expecting it. The disciples were hiding, the women were at the tomb weeping, no one expected it to happen, even though Jesus had said it so plainly. No one expected it, and no one was primed to believe it. And so you got to step back and ask the question, why is it that thousands of the first Christians would come from among the Jews almost immediately? And the answer is not wish fulfillment. The only plausible explanation is that it happened. It happened. So my challenge to you is be willing to examine your doubts about Christianity. Be willing to bring them to Jesus like Martha did. Be open to the fact that there may be something true that you are, are inclined to reject. Take your doubts to Jesus. Take your doubts to Jesus by going to his word. We're, we're reading John's gospel right now. If you have a Bible, you know, go back, begin in John chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have one, contact the church, we'll get you one. Read John's gospel. Take your doubts to John's gospel. As you're reading it, say, God, I don't know if we're even there. 
But if you are there, will you help me understand as I read this, who you are and what that means for me? Last week, I mentioned a book by Tim Keller, Making Sense of God. If I can give you a little companion to that one, it's his book, The Reason for God. Both of those are, are helpful, but the main text that you want to be in is the Bible, and I encourage you to start with John. So, from Martha, we learn to take our doubts to Jesus. But second, we're going to look at Mary's grief. And from Mary's grief, we learn to take our deepest pain to Jesus. So let's take a look now at verses 28 through 32. When she said this, that is Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. So you can picture there's a bunch of people in the house, a bunch of Jewish people have come in, they're all mourning, they're grieving. Martha makes her way in, kind of pulls Mary aside and says to Mary, Jesus is here. So picking back up in verse 29, and when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, uh, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. All right, let's stop there. Now, put yourself in Mary's shoes for a minute. Your beloved brother has just died. You know someone who could have prevented it, and he didn't come. Or at least he didn't come in time, and you are grieving. Now, this is the same Mary, the text tells us back in chapter 11, uh, early in chapter 11. This is the same Mary that we read about in Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, there's this woman, Mary, who enters into this house where Jesus is. He's a guest of a Pharisee. And all the men who were there would have judged Mary big time because Mary was someone who had, you know, lived kind of a sinful life. But she had heard about Jesus and she put her trust in him. And so she, you know, kind of boldly went into that courtyard of that house and went up to Jesus and fell at his feet and began to weep. And, and, and her tears fell on Jesus' feet and, and he washed, she washed the dirt off with them and, and, and she anointed his feet with oil. That's this Mary. She knew what it was to be loved by Jesus. She knew that Lazarus was loved by Jesus. How could he not come to her aid? How could he not come to Lazarus' aid? You can imagine her being tempted to harden her heart. But what did she do? She ran to him. Verse 29 tells us. Verse 32 tells us she wept at his feet. The same tears that fell on Jesus' feet in Simon the Pharisee's house in Luke chapter 7 are now falling again on his feet here outside Bethany. She doesn't go with answers. Verse 32 is really an implied question. Verse 32, now when Mary came to Jesus and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Implied question, why weren't you here? Why weren't you here? But she goes. She runs to him with her grief. So let's ask this question. How does Christianity help us with our grief when we're suffering? There are some challenging questions from this text 
for the age in which we live right now? In fact, these are questions that are challenging in any age for anyone for whom suffering is real. And that's everyone at some point. Verse 32, again, let me, let me read the question that's implied, of course. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Implied, Lord, why weren't you here? And then again in verse 37, which we haven't read yet, but we'll get to in a minute. Verse 37, all the other Pharisees, I mean, all the other Jews who were there said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Where were you, Jesus? The deeper question that they were asking and that we're asking is why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow suffering? I was listening to a podcast uh, last week, actually. Uh, Undeceptions is the name of the podcast. I recommend it to you. I think it'll be posted later on our Facebook page. Uh, the, the podcast was an interview with Amy Orr Ewing. Amy Orr Ewing is a British theologian and apologist, and she encourages us in that podcast. I think she has a book coming out. I can't wait. Don't know the title yet. But anyway, she encourages us to ask another question first. Before we ask the question, why does God allow suffering? First, ask the question, why does suffering hurt? Why does suffering hurt? I mean, think about it. Nobody questions the fact that Mary is hurting, that she's grieving her brother's death. But if you take a purely materialistic view of the universe, such that our feelings are nothing more than physiological responses to external stimuli, then you have to step back and ask, why the grief? Why the sorrow? How do we make sense of Mary's weeping if all that we live in is a material universe and nothing that we feel is actually real? Why does suffering hurt? Now, you know and I know the answer is because we are more than just a collection of cells that experience external stimuli and have physiological responses. We are people. Love is real. And when there's loss, we grieve. From a, from a purely materialistic worldview, that doesn't make any sense. From a Christian worldview, it absolutely makes sense. We love because we are created in the image of a God who is love. We were created to love in relationship because God is triune. He is in a relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we grieve because we live in a world that is broken. It is not the way God created things to be. And so, yes, we get an answer from Christianity as to why suffering hurts. We don't get an answer from Christianity in every case as to why suffering exists. What we do get from Christianity is two things. A reminder throughout the Bible and from this text itself that this God who is all-powerful and this God who is all-loving could have reasons for permitting suffering in our lives 
that we can't fully comprehend. That was certainly the case for Mary and for Martha. We also have from the Bible a person that we're pointed to in our suffering, and that is Jesus. It's the cross that we talked about on Good Friday, this past Friday. And of all the religions in the world, only Christianity offers a God who has suffered. Only Christianity speaks to a God who is so committed to ending suffering and death that he entered into suffering and death in order to do something about it. And so with Mary, we can take our grief to Jesus, knowing that he understands. And because he is risen, knowing that he is doing something about it. So from Martha's doubt, we learn to take our doubt to Jesus. From Mary's grief, we learn to take our grief to Jesus. And now third and fourth, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit here. Third, Jesus' tears. Jesus' tears open a window into the very heart of God. Let's look at verses 33 through 38. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he open the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now, it is hard to do justice to the depth of emotion that is expressed in that phrase in verse 33. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That's one word in the Greek. It's a word that's used often to describe the snorting of horses, right? It's just, a, it's a word that says that, that, that helps us get at this idea that, that he was indignant. But he also wept. So there's this, there's this mix of, 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 of rage even against what? Against Mary and Martha because they were grieving? He knew that he was about to change everything for them. He knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Was he simply grieving and angry because Lazarus had died? No, he knew what he was about to do. Why the grief? Why the outrage? He was outraged. He wept because he knew that death is not the way it's supposed to be. He knew that death is an intruder a violator. Death is not a part of life. Do not believe that for one second. Death is not just a part of life. Death is an aberration. Death destroys all that is good and replaces it with pain and sorrow. And so Jesus, the Lord of the universe, God in the flesh, wept. He raged because of what he saw before him in the death of his friend, Lazarus. And what does that tell us about God? That tells us that God understands our tears. Here's Jesus weeping. Isaiah chapter 53, long before Jesus came, 700 years before the incarnation. Isaiah 53, verse 3, pointing to Jesus, says he is a man acquainted, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Here's God in the flesh who knows what it is to grieve with those who grieve. Because he himself grieves. God understands our tears. God remembers our tears. I love this verse from Psalm 56, verse 8. 
You, God, keep track of all my sorrows. Listen, you have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. That's amazing. God is saying, the psalmist is saying, God, you are so concerned about me and my grief that you, it's as if you have captured all my tears. You're counting every tear that falls from my eye. And the third thing we learn from this is that God will one day wipe away our tears. God understands our tears. He remembers our tears. He will one day wipe away our tears. Mary and Martha's tears were dried when Lazarus was raised from the dead. But Lazarus was raised ultimately to die. Lazarus would die. There would be more tears that would flow. And with each death, with each loss, there is more and more grieving. More tears. Until one day in Revelation 21, the last book of the Bible, verse 4, we read that God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. One day, one day, every tear will be wiped from every eye. The tears of Jesus give us a glimpse into the very heart of God. And now finally, Lazarus's life. Let's take a look at verses 39 through 44 and finish out this morning. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. One day Jesus will return. And he will call out. And all who have believed will rise from the dead and be given the great new gift of eternal life. All will be raised, the Bible teaches. All will stand before God and have to give an account for their deeds done in the body, for the things that they did in their life on earth. Those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ will be able to hear Wonderful news, debt paid, judgment cast upon Jesus in your place on the cross. And having been risen, we'll experience not the kind of life that Lazarus experienced, but the kind of life that Jesus gives us a preview of from his resurrection. There's an interesting image parallel that's not right here in the text. You see with Lazarus, he comes out, but he comes out still bound, still bound with with cloth, still still needing to be helped out. But when you read the account of Jesus, when the the women got to the tomb, what did they find? They found the, the head cloth neatly wrapped, sat down. Jesus was unbound. 
It's a, it's a metaphor, right? It's just a way of thinking about the fact that in a sense, Lazarus was still very much bound by the things of this earth. And of course, Lazarus would eventually die. Jesus, risen Jesus, fit now for the life of the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the resurrected life of Jesus points us toward. What we see in Lazarus's life now is a little picture of what it means to respond to the call of Jesus. Jesus calls out. Lazarus responds. He comes out to him. He's physically dead. He's now physically alive. The way that looks right now is that Jesus still calls out. He may be calling right now. As I preach, as his word has been read, he may be tugging on you and saying, put your trust in me. That is Jesus calling out. That is no less a miracle. In fact, it's a greater one than the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Because what's happening whenever anyone responds to the call of Jesus Christ is a spiritual resurrection. And so if that's where you are right now, put your trust in Jesus. Go out to him. Pray. Cast all your cares and your anxieties on him. In your moment of desolation, Find your hope in him. You know, everyone in this passage is moving toward Jesus. Martha's moving toward Jesus with her doubt. Mary's moving toward Jesus in her grief. Lazarus is moving toward Jesus in response to his call on his life. Will you move toward Jesus this morning and experience in your hour of desolation the hope of resurrection? Let's pray. Lives again our glorious King, where, O death, is now thy sting. Lord Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the only hope for the world, our Savior and Lord. Death could not conquer you. The tomb could not imprison you. Let no shadow of the grave terrify us, and no fear of darkness turn our hearts from you. Help us to raise our joys and triumphs throughout the time of our sojourn on earth as we wait eagerly for your promised return. Amen.